acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was wooden. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A good idea can be truly transformative. An original invention or a new way of looking at things can change the world. And sometimes, in history, it is the power of an idea that binds people and events together, even across wide expanses of time and space. This season on The Thread, we trace the trajectory of a revolutionary idea, one that has traveled around the globe for more than a century. We began this season of The Thread 50 years ago in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King revolutionized the struggle for racial justice in America through the use of nonviolent resistance. Negroes of the United States, following the people of India, have demonstrated that nonviolence is not sterile passivity, but a powerful moral force which makes for social transformation. And in the first three episodes of this season, we traveled back in time in order to trace the origins of that powerful moral force. Dr. King would not have become the champion of nonviolence without the influence of a black activist named Bayard Rustin. We are nonviolent. Because injury to one is injury to all. More than any other civil rights leader, including King, Rustin was responsible for injecting peaceful protest into the black freedom struggle. Rustin's own inspiration came from across the globe, from an Indian lawyer determined to convert his enemies into friends in the struggle to free his homeland from the British Empire. I regard myself as a soldier, though a soldier of peace. Mohandas Gandhi believed that nonviolence was the key to social change and to personal change as well. It became uh, his mission to become a better person uh, every day. And so he gradually worked on all his weaknesses and transformed them into strengths. Gandhi's faith in the power of nonviolent resistance was inspired by another man, half the world away, Leo Tolstoy. 
Like Gandhi, the famous novelist strived to live a simple life of virtue and to help the least fortunate in his Russian homeland to fight back against an oppressive regime. Gandhi once called Leo Tolstoy the greatest apostle of nonviolence in the present age. His admiration for the Russian thinker came from more than just an appreciation of his writings. The two men corresponded in a series of letters and exchanged ideas on nonviolent protests just before Tolstoy's death in 1910. Like Gandhi, Tolstoy was a larger-than-life figure in his home country. For decades, Tolstoy was a wealthy Russian aristocrat and world-famous novelist. He was the author of two of the greatest novels ever written, War and Peace and Anna Karenina. And then Tolstoy turned his back on his aristocratic life and accomplishments. He experienced a profound spiritual crisis, one followed by an equally profound awakening. Leo Tolstoy was born in his family's estate in the Russian countryside south of Moscow in 1828. This is Tolstoy scholar Jay Perini. I mean, the crucial thing about Tolstoy is he was an aristocrat. He was um, Count Leo Tolstoy. He inherited this vast estate, he, which had originally had thousands of serfs on it. He would have had 30 servants in his own house. He was um, from the extreme upper classes. And Tolstoy, like many other young men in his social circle, lived a privileged existence. Tolstoy biographer Rosamond Bartlett. He is very characteristic in his early life for sort of having these incredible passions that evaporate quite quickly. Um, so one day he decides to do one thing and then, you know, very shortly he'll give it up and do something else. Jay Perini again. He travelled to Paris and spoke French like all Russian aristocrats did. He spent time in Moscow and St. Petersburg. He was a great frequenter of whorehouses and gambling joints. He was a wild man in his youth. He had endless uh, mistresses and love affairs. Then his life took a very different turn. Rosamond Bartlett. Everything crystallized for him when, on a whim, he decided in his early 20s to travel down to the Caucasus with his elder brother Nikolai, whom he idolized. Nikolai was an officer in the Russian Imperial Army, which was bogged down in the Crimean War in the Caucasus. Tolstoy went along for the ride, but he ended up joining his brother in the army. What he witnessed there disturbed him. And so his experience of violence was real. Um, he really was on the front lines. He watched people being riddled with bullets. He was really shell-shocked by the experience of fighting in the Crimean War. Tolstoy's encounter with war stayed with him. You could say there was a sort of foundation for the later views about violence, um, but they took a long time to mature, but certainly it was a life-changing experience for him. During the war, Tolstoy also took up another activity that would prove life-changing. Because he had so much time on his hands, he also started writing, and the birth of his literary career takes place in the Caucasus. 
Tolstoy's first book of stories addressed the 11-month-long siege of the Crimean capital of Sebastopol. It took readers behind the scenes of the Russian army's doomed war effort. It was a devastating account of the horror and futility of war. Tolstoy continued to write after the war, including a colossal work widely considered his first masterpiece. So then, of course, he'd plunged into the writing of War and Peace, which is this, you know, this great work of genius, incredible novel. War and Peace chronicled another war, the French invasion of Russia under Napoleon in 1812. Tolstoy researched the war extensively in order to bring it to life. And he found it very difficult to know what to do with himself when he finished that, for, as you can imagine. <laughs> Despite his newfound fame, Tolstoy, now in his 40s, was already beginning to grow disillusioned with being a professional writer. He wanted to really engage with more pressing questions about the meaning of life. And, and you see that uh, coming up more and more in Anna Karenina as it goes on. Tolstoy's second great masterpiece, Anna Karenina, was published in several installments during the 1870s. As the novel came to an end, too, Russia was getting involved in another war, which he found deeply depressing. Tolstoy's opposition to war found its way into the novel's final installment. By the time we get to the end of Anna Karenina, you're looking at Tolstoy's non-violent um, philosophy in embryonic form. Fyodor Dostoevsky, another great Russian novelist and contemporary of Tolstoy's, wrote a review of Anna Karenina. He called it, quote, flawless as a work of art, but he took issues with other aspects. Dostoevsky is critical of Tolstoy for opposing war in Anna Karenina, and yet of the two, only Tolstoy has actually experienced war at close hand. He is the only one who's actually served in the army. Uh, Dostoevsky never did. Tolstoy's growing discontent was not limited to his objections to war. Jay Perini again. By the time he finished Anna Karenina, uh, I think he was just very, very depressed, even suicidal. That, there was a suicidal tendency in Tolstoy. Um, he just wanted to erase himself because he could see the pointlessness of life. But Tolstoy managed to find a way out. The solution was a cause far greater than himself. In the late 1870s, Leo Tolstoy embarked on long religious pilgrimages to find answers to his great spiritual questions. Rosamond Bartlett. He was on a, on a journey uh, to discover some practical rules for life. Um, and then he went to uh, the caves monastery in Kiev where Christianity had started in, uh, in Russia. Tolstoy, like most Russians, was raised to believe in the Christian doctrines of the Russian Orthodox Church, the ruling religious hierarchy in the nation, and one closely aligned with the Tsarist regime. And rather like um, earlier decisions in his life, it was a very sort of, uh, sort of lightning moment. He just suddenly snapped. He, he suddenly just turned against it. And so he started to re-evaluate all his own moral principles. The aristocratic playboy turned acclaimed novelist, now turned philosopher. Tolstoy undertook a critical examination of Christian theology. He went through the, the Gospels um, and sort of threw out everything which he thought was, was make-believe and ended up with a New Testament that was shorn of miracles, basically, that 
just concentrated on what Jesus said. Tolstoy produced his own version of the Christian Gospels, one that he felt could serve as a practical guide for living a moral life. The new Christianity that Tolstoy devised for himself essentially boiled down to the lessons of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. That is, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That, in a nutshell, is Tolstoy's religious philosophy. This is what's going to be at the heart of the millions of pages he will now uh, write about this new Christian philosophy and what will influence people around the world, um, including, of course, famously Gandhi. Tolstoy's spiritual journey landed hard on the principle of nonviolence. He came to believe that being a true Christian required one to make a commitment to pacifism. What came out of Tolstoy's um, new reading of the Gospels is this idea that you cannot take up arms. If you're going to be a Christian, then you've, you've got to live a Christian life to the letter. As far as he could see, the most important thing in the Gospels was really this sort of law of, of, of non-violence. Tolstoy's newfound faith also compelled him to question his own life and lifestyle and to take on the sources of the power, privilege, and violence he saw everywhere around him. Leo Tolstoy's spiritual rebirth was also driven by the circumstances of his own life and upbringing. Jay Perini again. He looked around and he said, what is causing all of this horror in society? And he said, wait a minute, it's people like me, rich people who live on estates with a thousand servants. So it's the feeling of guilt riddles Tolstoy's conscience, and he feels driven, he was driven by guilt. Tolstoy felt the need to put his newfound beliefs into action, to speak out against the evil and degradation he saw around him. And Tolstoy then became an activist himself again and again and again. I mean, he was endlessly trying to think of ways of alleviating the massive poverty which he saw. Tolstoy was especially appalled by the squalor he witnessed in the slums of Moscow. He saw the kind of ferocity of the czar, the repressiveness of this regime. And he was also horrified by the way the church, the Russian Orthodox Church, allied itself with the czarist regime. Rosamund Bartlett. And so he's determined now never to shut up. And essentially, that is what he does for the next 30 years, is to start shouting about the inequality of Russian society, the hypocrisy of the system. Tolstoy believed that the best way to address such issues was through love and nonviolence. And, as with Gandhi, this approach started at home. He is drastically changing his own lifestyle. So this means that he does not want to have anyone waiting on him. Uh, he doesn't like the idea of servants. Um, he stops smoking, he stops drinking, and he stops eating meat eventually. And he doesn't feel that he wants to have any, any money, um, and he certainly doesn't want to earn money from his own writings. 
Tolstoy also started to advocate for his new approach to life. And he said, well, we must, um, first of all, try to uh, live simply. We must try to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we must resist evil in any way we can and speak truth to power wherever that's possible. Tolstoy could speak truth to power with near impunity because of his fame. The Russian czar and authorities knew they couldn't arrest or exile him. The public outcry would be immense. He was a person with leverage in society. He had wealth. He had lots of people who would stand up for him. So the authorities put Tolstoy under constant surveillance and did their best to censor him. But he very quickly becomes a focus of attention for the Tsarist secret police because it's uh, dangerous behavior. Nothing that Tolstoy writes from this point on can be published for that same reason because it's seen as in inflammatory. Still, Tolstoy, like Gandhi in India, managed to get his message of love and nonviolence out. And most Russian people adored him for it. By the end of his life, too, he had such uh, moral authority that actually people looked up to him as the real Tsar because they had no respect for Nicholas II, who was actually on the throne. When Leo Tolstoy would step out of a train in Moscow or out of a carriage, he would be mobbed by hundreds, in fact, thousands of people. There were incidents in Russia where thousands crushed in upon him just to even see him. He was almost treated like a god in Russia. Tolstoy next sank his energy and his moral authority into another magnum opus, his most ambitious writing project yet. Tolstoy completed The Kingdom of God is Within You in 1893. The book's manuscript was more than 13,000 pages, longer than War and Peace and Anna Karenina put together. Tolstoy argues in the book that the basis of authority is bodily violence. But Tolstoy also observes that the coercive authority of governments, quote, is so precarious that very little is needed to shake their power to pieces. Biographer Jay Perini again. Here, Tolstoy gives his most complete theological and ethical um, summary of what it means to resist violence, but to do so in, in a kind of passive way, passive resistance to violence. And that's the book that King and, and Gandhi really looked to and said, ah, here we go. This lays it all out so beautifully. Tolstoy's treatise called for reorganizing society based on the Christian prescriptions to love thy enemies and refrain from violence. The book was immediately banned from publication in Russia, but soon French, English, and German translations found their way into circulation, and Tolstoy's new gospel of nonviolence spread. The kingdom of God is within you went right around the world and it influenced people in very far-flung places. You had all kinds of people serving in armed forces reading that work and immediately resigning their commissions. Uh, and of course, there was this young lawyer in South Africa, uh, Gandhi, who read it as well. And it had an absolutely electrifying impact on, on him. Gandhi admired Tolstoy's uncompromising search for truth, the manner in which he lived according to his principles. Gandhi listed the kingdom of God as one of the three most important influences in his life. And he wasn't even a Christian. But even Tolstoy had his influences, just like Gandhi was influenced by Tolstoy. Up next, the thread continues with the origins of Tolstoy's path to nonviolence. And for that, we travel back to the United States, 
125 years before Martin Luther King Jr. embarked on the Montgomery bus boycott. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was we'll it? Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leo Tolstoy aspired to leave a simple life in his later years, but he was never able to fully embrace it. Jay Perini again. He wanted to be devoted to these high principles. He could certainly have left his family years earlier and gone off to live in a monastery, um, but he didn't. He stayed, kept his title. He was Count Leo Tolstoy. He kept his estate and the guilt continued to weigh upon him. He was conscious of all of the um, ironies that, that were just in la- that his life was laden with these tremendous ironies. And there seemed to have been a trap. There was no way out. And so he takes off um, and goes, you know, uh, goes on the run. In the middle of a cold October night in 1910, the 82-year-old writer snuck out of his house. The most famous man in Russia left on foot and then boarded a train heading south for the Caucasus. Unfortunately, a few weeks later, he comes down with um, terrible um, infection, a kind of flu, which led to a kind of bronchitis, which led to pneumonia. Tolstoy was forced to get off the train at a small town in the countryside. 
He spent the last hours of his life preaching love and nonviolence to those around him. But, you know, even on his deathbed, he was, you know, uh, reading Rousseau and quoting him and, and, and delivering, you know, words of wisdom. And so Tolstoy was a bit of an oracle right to the very end. Thousands of people descended upon the small train station in the freezing cold. When Tolstoy finally died, there was a vast uh, outpouring of public sentiment. I mean, it was as though the St. Leo had died. So it was an extraordinary scene. More than 5,000 mourners waited in line to file past his coffin when it was returned to his home. The death of Tolstoy was reported on the front pages of not just the Russian newspapers, but the New York Times was running daily reports. I mean, this was the whole world was watching. Schools, factories, and offices closed across Russia in honor of the fallen giant. Rosamund Bartlett again. By the time Tolstoy died, he really was not only the most famous person in Russia, but one of the most famous people in the world. These days, we just think of Tolstoy as the author of War and Peace and Anna Karenina, principally. During his lifetime, he was much better known as a thinker uh, and as this sort of spiritual leader. Jay Perini. Well, I think it's just important to see Tolstoy as a primary voice in this great tradition of passive resistance to violence. Tolstoy understood that it's never a good thing to kill people, and it's certainly a very bad thing when states organize themselves around violence. Tolstoy's ability to think systematically and to synthesize various schools of thought helped transform the concept of nonviolent resistance. And he was able to modify and extend these ideas of nonviolence and put them into his own forms of expression, which then were picked up beautifully by uh, others, um, such as Gandhi, Martin Luther King, uh, Cesar Chavez, and so many people down the road. Tolstoy was also careful to point out that he was not the originator of the idea. Tolstoy did not and would never have claimed to have invented uh, the theories of the idea of nonviolent resistance to evil. Um, in fact, he, he very explicitly said, I took it from the Quakers, I took it from earlier writers. Quaker philosophers, such as the Englishman Jonathan Diamond, had written a great deal about the incompatibility of war and Christianity. Tolstoy was also familiar with the American Henry David Thoreau's philosophy of civil disobedience, which proposed a radically new form of social protest. But there was one particular Quaker and American whose works and passion Tolstoy revered above all others. William Lloyd Garrison. Tolstoy started to publish his religious writings in the second half of his life, and then he began to receive responses from readers all over the world. One of his admirers was an American named Wendell Garrison, who edited a journal called Non-Resistance. Garrison told Tolstoy that his father, the famous white American abolitionist and journalist William Lloyd Garrison, had a similar spiritual transformation decades earlier. The younger Garrison sent Tolstoy a copy of his late father's biography and writings. Tolstoy was moved by the elder Garrison's views and how the fiery journalist turned his principles of Christian pacifism into a plan of nonviolent resistance for the purposes of opposing slavery in the U.S. Jay Perini. Lloyd Garrison was uh, tremendously influential in Tolstoy's mind because he was a flashy journalist who was able to commandeer ideas to his side. He was able to really get in there and nitty-gritty and really uh, create an abolitionist movement. 
Tolstoy devoured Garrison's writings, which included the world's first declaration of nonviolent resistance. Garrison drew that up nearly half a century earlier for a peace convention in Boston in 1838. The declaration explained why Garrison and his fellow pacifists would oppose wars, unjust laws, and evil through nonviolent resistance and moral persuasion. We expect to prevail, Garrison wrote in the declaration, through the foolishness of preaching. Count Tolstoy found a kindred spirit in Boston. He even hung a framed photo of Garrison on the wall in his office. Here's Tolstoy biographer Rosamund Bartlett. He wasn't really uh, inclined to cooperate with any kind of, of government. He didn't want to really have to deal at all with coercion at any level. And this is really the sort of heart of the idea of nonviolence and what so inspired him about William Lloyd Garrison too. Tolstoy paid tribute to Garrison in The Kingdom of God. He said that Garrison's work convinced him that justice and peace could only be achieved in the world by putting the spiritual doctrine of non-resistance to evil into active practice. The fact that Garrison was such um, an activist appealed to Tolstoy as well. Still, Tolstoy could not believe that Garrison's powerful views remained relatively unknown to the world and largely forgotten in America. So, in the kingdom of God, Tolstoy set out to republicize and build upon the American journalist's long-forgotten insights. A powerful idea was resurrected. Next time on The Thread, William Lloyd Garrison. The American who influenced Tolstoy was a man on a remarkable mission. But the activist who sought to end his nation's original sin through nonviolent means would live to see it instead resolved through the bloodiest violence in American history. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, 
will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.